Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Hello and welcome to Here's Where It Went Wrong, the podcast where every week we have one of our favorite comedians to talk about their favorite subjects in sports, pop culture, and history, and we trace its origins and its future to figure out where it all went off the rails. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Andrew Nadeau. Andrew, how you doing, man? I'm doing really good. This is our second recording in two days. For the listeners now, this is January 5th, uh, but this has been good. We've been able to dive deep into this, and I have amazingly just been getting more and more excited. This has been really fun. We've got two more this week. It's been great. How are you? Oh, I'm doing good. We're really running a marathon so that we could take, like, really deserve that that holiday break. And uh, again, I do want to remind the listeners, this is happening during Hanukkah, and I'm Jewish. <laughs> but other than that, it's, it's for that wonderful holiday break coming up soon. I said holiday break. It was very, I was inclusive. It was incredibly it. inclusive, except it happens after my holiday. I mean, fair. <laughs> There's only so much we can do. We only have so many days we can take off. But no, it's been going really well. And I'm, I'm glad we're getting these uh, all in. It's been a lot of fun. Guys, uh, so this episode, like I said, it's, it's part of our marathon recording week. But I'm so glad we got this next comic on. He is an emmy-nominated writer you've seen his works uh in marvel comics he has a new children's book princess dinosaur that is out today or whenever you're listening after today the very funny daniel kibblesmith daniel how you doing man i'm good thank you for having me it just occurred to me that princess dinosaur uh like all dinosaurs uh will uh, live on in our our memory uh <laughs> and in legends uh well beyond well beyond the time of their initial relevance um, but no, I'm I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's absolutely our pleasure. Also, I saw the cover artwork like the day you released that. Uh, by the way, I followed you on Twitter. I think from the day I joined Twitter, I had no idea what it was. Oh. So uh, I just searched for comics and I started scrolling through. So I followed your stuff for quite a while. And yeah, the Princess Dinosaur artwork looked amazing. It's very beautiful. Yeah, it's the second book that I've done with uh, my friend uh, Ashley Quatch, uh, the illustrator of uh, Princess Dinosaur, and um, relevant to the now past holiday season, Santa's husband. Which I'm sure on January 5th, uh, sales of my Christmas book are just like going through the roof right now. Uh, They're probably... I felt a little bad that we missed that window because that was also a a very cool idea and I felt like it was executed very well. Everybody, put in your headphones, go out, buy Princess Dinosaur. Right now. In a bookstore, wearing a mask. I don't know if you're allowed to do... By the time this comes out, I don't know if bookstores will allow humans inside of them. I don't know what's going to happen. We don't know the restrictions. I'm, I'm personally curious, Daniel, are you happy to know that you're one of the first names that apparently comes up when you type comic into Twitter for the first time? No, I'm deeply terrified. No, that's... 
that's gonna set me up for honestly what i think it was i think i started with stephen colbert and then it had like related names <laughs> oh sure yeah because at the time i would have probably uh was writing for the the colbert show and would have had it in my bio yeah hey i'm happy to be in the wake of any other monumentally successful person <laughs> like a barnacle on a whale absolutely i mean that's the goal that that's the dream here yep <laughs> We have a fantastic topic today. You wanted to talk about the Blade series, uh, obviously with a deep Marvel background. And of course, I was very excited about that because the vampire mythos is so deep that I had fun digging into that and seeing where the connections were and where the extreme lack of connections were. So we've got some fun history on that too. Andrew, please hit us with this history because you sent me this three-page document about 20 minutes ago. I looked at it once and said, I'm not reading that. And Andrew's got this. <laughs> it's currently fun. Five pages, but yeah, it's got some good stuff. I didn't even get the page count right. We're we're firing on all cylinders today, but I added more since then. Actually, I had some other notes that I combined with it. <laughs> Who would have thought that the most popular horror monster genre of the past five hundred years would have a lot of folklore associated with it? An incredible amount, but most of it's surprisingly recent. But I, I found some stuff that went way back, and uh, as I so often do here, I get to start with ancient Mesopotamia. Classic Andrew move. It's it's pretty much my go-to now. I think we did this in the very last episode. <laughs> <laughs> but ancient Mesopotamia, the Hebrews, Greeks, Romans, they all had these blood-drinking demons that are considered the precursor to vampires. Lilith, who's one of my favorite in mythology because of the way she continued to pop up in variations, is just kind of like the blame for everything bad that happened to men. She's the first wife of Adam and later was painted as all kinds of demons responsible for the downfall of men, but often more as, as a succubus. Uh, but there are also stories of her leaving Adam because she was forced to be subservient and she refused and becoming the wife of Ashmedai, king of the demons. And as a result of that, she became a blood-drinking demon and could be considered one of the first vampires in this form, at least in, in the religious connection that we're going to see later on with the fear of crucifixes and the, this heavy religious tie-in. Lilith's one of those characters like pops up in things and I feel so smart. But, like, <laughs> like, I feel like that's like backbench Christianity knowledge and I'm just like, Lilith, yes. Like when they do Lilith's stuff in other Dracula stories, you can whisper like, this is from the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly how I feel every time it comes up. And and she really was a, a fascinating story, I think in large part because there was so little on her. So it just kind of got filled in with whatever people wanted, but it, it took some very interesting turns uh, over time. And the Babylonians also had Lilitu and her daughters, the demons or spirits, Lilu. The ancient Greeks had the Strigas. And the, interestingly, they all supposedly fed on the blood of babies. This was very specific to the mythos at the time, but the Babylonian goddess Lamashtu, there or the Sumerian equivalent of Dime, also had these heavily vampiric natures. The ancient Greeks had Ampus and Lamia, which later became more like witches and demons. But they were both daughters of gods or goddesses and fed on the blood of humans. And it was, the evolution pretty much stayed that way for quite a while. Ancient India had Vitalis, but there's almost no change. In, in the medieval period, vampires aren't specifically even a thing yet. Revenants are. The reanimated corpse is, is the big change here once you enter the medieval period. As we've moved to this monotheistic society, there's less association with gods and children of gods that drink blood, but we do begin to ascribe behavior and specialities to demons, which is when the uh, Lilith legend again grows and they start to ascribe a lot more of the faults of men to her. But it isn't until the 1700s when Southeastern Europe begins to experience vampire hysteria that the traits we associate with vampires, the stakes, beheadings, burning, blood drinking. You know when vampire mania sweeped the country. It was <laughs> every, every once in a while, every, every two or 300 years, it was that, and then it was the 90s, and then it was Twilight. And 
those were <laughs> those were the big ones. You know those big crazes. First it was vampires, then the Beatles, then it was vampires again. It goes in waves. It's, it's very cyclical, but at this time it happened as a lot of fear-based things at the time when people were dying and they didn't have an explanation for it. So this is still, again, a far cry from like the gentleman monsters that we have of today. They're reanimated dead. That's all they are. When you say vampire hysteria in this context, you are not referring to like an explosion in popularity of the stories as entertainment, but an actual pervasive fear that vampires were killing people that they knew. Oh, yeah. In fact, this is when the word vampire appears. It hasn't appeared in literature yet. This is 1720s and 30s, and Peter Blagojevich, he's lived in Serbia. He dies in 1725, and his death was followed by a series of others after a period of very short illnesses, only around 24 hours, nine people died within eight days. And on their deathbeds, the victims allegedly claimed to have been strangled by Blagojevich at night. Andrew, I just want to intervene real quick because I actually knew this story because of the Michelle Trachtenberg series, Truth or Scare, that was on Children's Discovery Network. Wait, uh, tell me about this. I had no idea this was a thing. Michelle Trachtenberg, very famously Dawn Subbers in the Buffy series. That's right. Has her own vampire connection. Was this before or after she was Dawn? Because that's important. This was after Dawn. Yeah, so like there we they go. were using her her fame as Dawn to like be like Here's her telling you the history of scary creatures and whatnot. And they did a vampire episode about how Petra died. People said that he was strangling people like after he died to kill them and that they actually exhumed his body to have to like prove that he was in fact dead. And that's where the idea that, you know, vampires sleep in coffins and you have to like take them out in daylight and stab them came from. I don't want to be a jerk. Please be a jerk. Be a jerk. It's called for. Okay. I don't want to, I don't want to be a jerk to these dead people (laughs) uh, in Eastern Europe hundreds of years ago. But if I was strangled by a vampire, I would be dead. I would not be (laughs) hanging around with an illness to say like, hey, get in here real quick. My last words are that Blagojevich did this and he strangled me and now I'm dead. <laughs> if I was a vampire and I was strangling people, they would stay dead. No one would be alive to tell the story. I wouldn't half-ass a strangle and then jump out the window <laughs> so that they could rat me out to the townspeople. That dude's cousin that looked vaguely like him went on a killing spree <laughs> is what I'm getting. Well, there's a lot of interesting theories as to why this happened because there's another similar case just like a year later with Arnold Powell who's believed to have killed 16 people after he died and they did the same thing where they exhumed the body and uh, they stake it, set it on fire, cut off its head. God, what a good time to be a serial killer. (laughs) All right, this one's a little bit complex. I'm gonna try and keep this brief. But Serbia had been annexed by the Habsburg monarchy in 1718 with the Treaty of Pesarowitz, as we all know. Yeah, I was about to say, duh. (laughs) Sure, the inbred guy with the lip in the painting. I know about this. (laughs) That's the one. From my wife who is smarter than me. (laughs) So they've taken most of Serbia and some of Northern Bosnia for Austria from the Ottoman Empire. And this remained in Austrian control until the 1739 Treaty of Belgrade. But these now Austrian-controlled areas of Serbia were under Viennese military control for a variety of strategic and fiscal reasons. But these areas were already devastated by war. They didn't have food. They had little agriculture. They survived on cattle breeding. They didn't have proper nutrition to begin with. This was a high-stress environment. And along with that, they're now losing their loved ones. So dreams of the person that just died 
became he visited me. And that soon became he tormented me because you're tormented by your life. And this is one of the leading theories for how this managed to explode. And it was this confluence of events where everything just happened to hit just right, along with a society that was fairly separate. The population was already nomadic. You didn't have much exposure, but you've got your folklore. Combine that with increased fear and stress, and it leads to everyone's dying. Everyone's dying because of vampires. I mean, it makes sense. (laughs) I'm completely just like, look, I've had nightmares where I've woken up and it's just like, man, vampires are everywhere. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, sleep paralysis is a thing. Mass hysteria is a thing. What's really impressive to me is that the stories were consistent enough in relation to that trauma that they could be repeated and codified into something that could then be inspiration for a novel that could then be, you know, I assume this is where you're going. Yes, absolutely. The foundation of a more pop cultural mythology. It was, and it was this interesting growth because what happened was because they're now under Austrian control with the first death with Blagojevich, They say we had to get the Austrian authorities and they say, no, we need to exhume them now or we're all going to basically riot. So they they, they do it for the second death with with Powell. Dig up the grave. Dig up the (laughs) grave. What are vampire stories if not a bunch of townspeople demanding something all at once? (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of that's probably the only part of the vampire mythos that is 100 percent true is a bunch of townspeople getting together super pissed off about something. Well, I mean, yeah, that was exactly in fact, the town leader at the time wrote the Austrian government and said, look, if you got to blame someone, don't blame me. I tried to stop him. <laughs> like he just threw the town under the bus. But when Palais dies, after the first death, they actually sent out medical investigators. And one of the big issues here was that they don't have a good take on what happens to the body during decomposition, especially if you're buried in winter. So they exhume the body and it's looking fresher than they expect than a body that had been left out. Also, depending on the rate of decomposition, it might have some blood. So all of this led to, oh, he's in vampiric condition. So then in the second investigation, the same team comes out and in their notes, they basically write that the destruction of the vampire was necessary to keep the town under control. But one of the doctor's father is also a doctor and he sends this story to a journal, but five government officials have signed off on the story and he leaves out the part where they wrote it as we did this because it kept the town in control and instead kind of told it as they did this because it had to be done. And this is the first time the vampires began to be accepted among high society, the intellectual crowd <laughs> as scientific fact. The Newsmax of the day. <laughs> it was this really unexpected switch. And all of a sudden, because of this, it now starts appearing in literature. And before this, again, they are just reanimated dead that are hungry. Except then, 1748, you've got Heinrich August Ossenfeld's poem, The Vampire, in 1748, one of the first pieces of writing about vampires, and immediately erotic. (laughs) Just right away, vampires are horny. (laughs) It's sexually charged right out of the gate. He read that newspaper, and he's just like, the dead are coming back and killing their loved ones. Hot. <laughs> and yeah, but I mean, that's they've got these undertones of the revived for your love. Uh, Goethe's The Bride of Corinth in 1797 doesn't call her a vampire, but she returns from the grave to find her love, searching for the lifeblood of his heart to drink, was the line. And and this suddenly becomes consistent. Then it reaches English literature in 1801 with Robert Southey, and then Byron's epic poem, The Jower, in 1813. And when I know you're going to like this part from our Frankenstein episode, the a fragment in 1819, his unfinished novel, which was based on the story he told at the legendary ghost story competition at Lake Geneva. Okay, wait. So this is the this is not this the book about shapes that taught us about racism. This is, no. this is a scary story 
that Mary Shelley heard while she was on that incredible vacation. Right, which again, that book was Flatland. It was good despite when constantly refuting that at every point, and he's done so very well. <laughs> but this is, and Polidori, who was also at this same meeting, Lake Geneva, Byron's physician, he based his 1819 novella, The Vampire, spelled with a Y, which now we do to make it look cooler, but then it was just a thing. <laughs> now, yeah, now we do it because we're doing like, we need to trademark the role-playing game manual. <laughs> exactly. Once again, Buffy just... Just like the pronunciation of the vampire. Right. <laughs> well, but Polidori, he not only based the, the concepts from Byron's story, he based the vampire itself, the one he created, Lord Ruthven, on Byron himself. The personality was taken from Byron. And from this point, you start getting the stage plays, operas in 1827. It's so common knowledge that in 1845, Bronte's Wuthering Heights, Heathcliff is even accused or suspected of being a vampire by his housekeeper. At this point, it has entered the zeitgeist. And then, of course, finally reaches the pinnacle in 1897 with Bram Stoker's Dracula. And this is where we start to see the vampire that we absolutely recognize. They start to give it the backstory, of course, combining it with a bit of Vlad the Impaler's story. And this becomes the basis for vampires in fiction and is directly traceable to Blade, which is the the real focus today. And so much of Blade is based on that. Yeah, remember that name Dracula? It's gonna come back. <laughs> yeah, write that, write that down. So that is a little bit too much backstory, but how about you tell us a bit about Blade? Well, Blade uh, is a uh, Marvel uh, character uh, who had his origin in the uh, Tomb of Dracula comics from Marvel in the 70s. And despite loving the movies and also writing for the comics, I've read very few of them. The characters are, you know, wildly different because Blade the movie arrived at a time when we didn't have this total cultural acceptance of big cartoony superhero movies. It was still very much the product of like the 90s action boom where you needed to kind of glom your superheroes onto a accepted commercial genre, like, you know, action movie, vampire movie, action horror, uh, in the case of Blade. And it, it ended up being this uh, really thin wedge to kind of sneak a superhero movie into the mainstream consciousness, and also an R-rated superhero movie with a black lead. It does a lot that I think in hindsight is pretty impressive, uh, just in terms of sort of silently ushering in this era of, you know, big green hulks. And, you know, there's there's a line in the first X-Men movie where they make fun of Wolverine for judging the costumes and Cyclops says, you were expecting yellow spandex? Right. <laughs> a classic line. Right, because comic books are stupid and you're stupid for liking them. <laughs> but we do want your money and there are good ideas here. So we're going to we're going to walk this fine line for a few years uh, while we try to figure out how how much these should resemble the comic books in order to remain commercially viable? And the answer was, you know, entirely. Like, you should make Iron Man and Captain America and Black Widow and Spider-Man all kind of feel like they do in the comics, and that ends up being the most the most commercial approach. Well, it is wild because, like, with the X-Men, I mean, Grant Morrison was immediately like, let's get those leather outfits on the X-Men, because, like, <laughs> they were wearing those black suits there for a bit after that movie came out. Like, the comics shifted to be more like the movies to increase sales there for a bit, which is wild, because now we want everything to be comics 
accurate. Yeah, and there's always it always depends on it depends on the creative team, it depends on the property, but there's always this really interesting dance where the comics will race to catch up with something that the movies are doing and then the movies will take a story that the comics did 20 years ago. And you kind of watch them sort of play this funhouse mirror sort of reflection of each other where they'll they'll jump through hoops in the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man film. Spider-Man shoots webs out of a gland in his wrist. He doesn't build a gizmo to shoot webs out of. So then the comics will come up with like this incredibly convoluted story where Spider-Man is kind of biologically deconstructed and reborn so that he can have organic web shooters. And then that lasts like a year. And then in the Andrew Garfield movie, he has the regular ones again. And that's kind of what everybody who's reading the comics wanted to begin with because you don't, you, you can't really control the degree to which the movies are bringing people to the comics or vice versa. You just kind of have to hug the rail and play it by ear. And it, it, it creates some of the weirdest, often very cool, often very regrettable decisions in in the genre to watch these sort of separate but complementary mediums chase each other. Well, it, it's very funny to think about, and I'll, I'll get off the Spider-Man tangent here in a second, but it's just funny to think that they were like, Sam Raimi stripped it down to just a gland in his wrist because he's like, that's, that's easier for the audience to understand. Don't worry about it. And the comics were like, great so it mutates into a spider and he's reborn from the carcass of that spider it's like way more convoluted than just being right. like his powers evolved right and that's because comics are awesome and <laughs> screenplays I'm a big fan. screenplays uh, are uh, hard to write and when they're done well uh, they're often uh, very elegant and do a lot of showing and not telling yeah they're uh, they're they're different from each other and that's and that's <laughs> that's a good thing and it's one of the it's one of the ways that we get those those insane parallels. I think that really speaks to uh, what you said about this kind of being one of the first, because there were attempts at superhero movies before this. You know, they had the 1994s, Fantastic Honestly, the biggest hit they had before this was Howard the Duck. <laughs> I mean, that, that was about it. That can't be right. Surely there was a comic book movie that grossed better than Howard the Duck. Uh, oh, ma- Marvel? I think maybe for Marvel. Oh, yeah, oh, for, for, yeah for, for Marvel. Marvel. Right, obviously Batman did much better. <laughs> right. But <laughs> I've heard Batman of that one. Batman 1989, <laughs> Superman 1978 are the pinnacle, but then for Marvel, you got Howard the right. Duck. <laughs> Marvel did very well in television animation for a long time, uh, which is one of the ways that the X-Men movie ends up happening. That was where they really uh, shone for so long. And they had 1989's The Punisher, but mostly the problem was that these things weren't really getting a budget. And so they were just kind of being thrown together. And it, it was very reminiscent more of like the 40s cartoons. And they hadn't really found their way. Uh, not that Howard the Duck did well. I, I, I don't have the numbers <laughs> on that one, but it was one that people could point to and be like, oh, okay, because the other ones, they just kind of got swept aside. But Blade, it was, this was obviously before Marvel Studios was a thing, but it helped bring in that era because people suddenly accepted or began to accept comic books as a thing that could exist on the screen, even if at this point they haven't hadn't realized they needed to stay truer to the story. Yeah, Blade was like the the first prospector to come back from California with gold. Right. <laughs> people were just like, hey, what what is that? And it's like, oh, it's like um it's like a trillion dollars worth of intellectual property. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um and all you have to do is not 
not crap on the audience for liking it, and it will become <laughs> bigger than Westerns in the 50s. <laughs> and I, I think something important that, that you had pointed out before this, too, was that the other movies that they had tried were, you know, Captain America, Fantastic Four in the 90s without the budget. Ones that, that the audience knew the character. Blade wasn't known as well, so it allowed them to have the freedom to mess with that without people being like, this isn't the Blade I know and love. It let them kind of take a bit of leeway, which might not have been the right choice necessarily, but when they tried to do it with the other movies previously, fans kind of rebelled. This one, people were able to get into it a bit easier. Hey everyone, before we get into today's pod, I want to tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast here at Blue Wire. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community Discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. And on top of that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. And the best part is, you can get all this for only $15 a month, the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup. So whether you're starting from scratch or have an existing show that you want to grow, Hustle is an open door to leveling up your sports experience. Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com join. Check out the description box to find out more, but that's bwhustle.com join. But when they tried to do it with the other movies previously, fans kind of rebelled. This one, people were able to get into it a bit easier. No, I I think that's right. Um, I think that if you're going to do something like this, the sort of two paths are to make, you know, the first Superman movie where you hire a guy who is Superman and then get John Williams to write a score where the (laughs) lyrics might as well be Superman. (laughs) And... It just feels right. But Superman is somebody where the audience kind of knows the beats. And I think there were enough people involved in those movies to know that they should try hard to, if not resemble the comics, which, you know, wasn't necessary at that time, but at least resemble what people associated with an icon who was comparable to maybe like a Mickey Mouse or something, just like a big character where they knew they knew how Superman looks and feels and how it should sound when he talks And with basically every other comic book hero, comic books were still this trash media that nobody really cared about. There was no expectation that anyone in a mainstream audience, you know, would or should respect them. So um, when you look at the successes that they had, especially on the Marvel side, it kind of comes down to accessibility. On the DC side, they've got these big icons where the brands are familiar enough that you just sort of stay true to them. And, you know, the first Batman movie isn't everybody's favorite take on Batman, but for moviegoers in the 80s, it it felt about right. It's like, oh, it's like the old TV show, but also like kind of darker, like the comics that are coming out. And also, you know, Tim Burton is this visionary who's at the start of a really interesting career, and it all kind of clicked into this really... Jack Nicholson is the Joker. Yeah. <laughs> Academy Award winner. Right? Like that, and then that sets a tone for like what those movies are going to be. It'll be like, oh, it'll be like the 60s show, where famous people come in and they play the bad guys and that's what they do and it largely works 
works. Like from a commercial standpoint, at least it works. And with the Marvel stuff, because it's Marvel, everything is messier and more human and more, uh, you know, emotionally fraught. And uh, it takes it takes a really long time to have successes. And when they do, you can see in hindsight why they are successful. Like the X-Men, you know, like we're saying, they're very slick. They're very modern. It's an idea where the time has kind of come. The casting is incredible. They're not wearing silly costumes, but the story resonates as this sort of like late 90s, 2000s, millennial angst. Everybody's an outcast. We kind of don't know how science works. <laughs> Computers are starting to run our lives. Like the X-Men movie comes out at a time when the future is sort of happening. And I think people buy it. And the cartoon at that point had been on for a while. So, you know, people who are teenagers are going to the movies. And then when Iron Man comes out, it's utterly plausible. It's like, oh, it's the most charming billionaire in the world buys and builds himself a flying suit. <laughs> and it's not until that movie has completely won you over that at the very, very after the credits, it's not until you are fully in their pocket that they say, by the way, this is a big, silly superhero thing. And by then you, you've bought your ticket, you know, for the next for the next 20 years. But with Blade... It is not a superhero movie until somebody tells you. Like, it's a superhero movie the way RoboCop is a superhero movie, where it's kind of like more of like genre parsing. It's an action movie about a guy who kills vampires with kung fu and a sword. Right. <laughs> yeah, you would find out later, like, oh, that was a comic book. That yeah. wasn't like, I'm going to go see the new Blade movie. It's like, oh, there's this like cool movie about a guy who fights vampires with a samurai sword and like we mentioned casting before with those other movies the casting of wesley snipes yeah yeah once in a lifetime fantastic yeah he was born he was born to play blade and he'd done like great stuff he's so good in um all of his action movies but like major league and uh tu wong fu and just he's he's a very talented performer it was so unexpected from every by the way audience i, I feel like you should know if you haven't picked up on this by now everything smart i say about this movie is something daniel said to me before we started recording i, I have really tried on this one yeah but, and anything anything smart i said about this movie i probably got from wikipedia so. <laughs> <laughs> but they really did such a, a fantastic job of bringing the audience in and yeah the casting was amazing it really introduced you to this new world and obviously it opened up the idea of sequels in, in kind of a different way obviously we had it with batman but this also opened up the world for uh, marvel's superhero sequels which obviously became the marvel universe on a slightly different side later on and blade 2 was was pretty solid as well yeah i love i love blade i'd 2. say blade 2 is the best one i would say i go back and forth like uh, the godfather part 2 the best one is whichever one i've seen more recently yeah <laughs> that's fair i mean but del toro just really just like creature design and action handling i mean the the two vampire ninjas that Blade is fighting throughout Blade 2 is so good. It's just, I can't wrap my head. And also, to back up, the casting of Chris Christopherson as Blade's, like, gadget guy, his Q. You're talking about Abraham Whistler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Abraham Whistler. But he's Blade's Q. That's what he is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's great. There's a lot of Batman in Blade. There's a lot of James Bond in Blade. And as the franchise goes on, I think that they they kind of lose sight of what I liked about it. And the James Bond and Batman aspects definitely get dialed up. And yeah, and, and there was a, a dramatic shift in that, which I think brings us to where it went wrong. 
So when? Where did it go wrong? Andrew, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> uh, this whole thing went super off the rails with Blade Trinity. Yeah. Yeah. Blade Trinity was rough. Uh, we all rewatched it today, actually, to make sure we were super refreshed. <laughs> I mean, we watched some bad stuff before. This one was, I continually got annoyed. I had to pay $4 to watch it today. I found that I purchased it already. I think that okay, I, you were out of the game. <laughs> I, well, I, so I'm such a big, I'm such a big fan of the first two and they, they meant so much to me when I was like a young adult. Uh, the first one probably came out when I was 15 or 16 and you know, I was going to an R rated movie before I was supposed to. And a lot of my fondness for it is tied up in nostalgia and being with my friends and the person I was. Sure. But um, I'm going to say three actually is worse. I'm going to say yeah. that it's not just, <laughs> it's not just the rose colored glasses. That's something didn't come together on that last one. One of the things that you sent me before this too, that I thought was so interesting was, was uh, Pat Oswalt's discussion on it. And one of the things that he had said about this was that Wesley Snipes was kind of barely there. <laughs> he was just there for the close-up shots. And other than that, they had like a body double for pretty much everything. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, back and forth about how true all of these stories are but i well but i also have no reason to believe that pat noswalt one of the stars of blade trinity you know who had just survived this like bizarre experience would you know make up anything significant yeah it's 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 nuts the thing that i always think about with blade trinity is that blade comes out in 1998 and it's this kind of coalescence of a lot of fashion and music and aesthetic that is in pop culture at that time like music videos kind of look like that like the black trench coats are sort of starting to be a thing and then um the matrix comes out the following year and then indefinitely the the kind of matrix owns the sunglasses and the trench coats and the techno music and then when blade 2 comes out guillermo del toro comes on and he makes like a very different movie it has everything that people loved about the first one but it's no longer aggressively 90s vampires this is sort of like hey the guy who made chronos you know, is doing his own like weird visual take on this. And they're like off in Eastern Europe. And <laughs> there's there's this like Nosferatu figure. And you get his kind of more stylized fairy tale world creeping into it. And it becomes, you know, something else entirely. And uh, you guys, you guys mentioned how this is a formula for sequels where unlike say the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films or the Marvel Cinematic Universe where consistency is sort of the goal this was operating on the 90s 2000s action sequel model where it kind of didn't matter you know as long as you had the same star you could make a sequel and it could feel pretty different and people could like it or not like it and then yeah then number number three comes out in uh, Blade Trinity comes out in 2004 and I believe all three Matrix movies have come out during that time and whatever was cool about that had been squeezed out by two truly visionary directors <laughs> yeah <laughs> and that is the time when David Goyer gets to step up into the shoes of uh, of uh, Stephen Norrington and Guillermo del Toro uh, David Goyer finally gets to direct a Blade movie at what I think is the worst possible time for it to be received <laughs> because he's you know fairly new uh, at directing a movie of this size as far as I know wasn't it his first film I don't know if it was his first but I know that he you know had been writing the Blade movies and I believe was planned to direct the third one for a while and it's just it's a it's a thankless job I think to come out with the movie that sort of feels like a Matrix film and evolved alongside them when you were a new director on this big tentpole action movie. 
another another big part of it is he wrote all three films and a lot of people when they look at blade trinity they're like how is there this drop off and it's because goyer had written or had pitched the idea of this was supposed to take place in the future <laughs> and it was supposed to be about the world was taken over by vampires blade ages slower because he's part vampire and he's supposed to be like fighting the resistance like they were going full matrix on it it was supposed to be like a very dark and then the studio like heard that pitch and they were like that sounds sad uh, change it. <laughs> I, I I totally get it because it's that sort of that multiple buy-in thing where he's already your buddy Blade, the vampire hunter. Like it's it's a bit of a genre blend that I don't think people were as amicable to at that time. Yeah, it was definitely like a bummer, and like people were just like, no, people like the Blade that says some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate uphill. That's Blade, not this sad <laughs> thing you're saying where people are dead. And now that they they add all of these very dry comedians, they've got two that I actually love, Parker Posey and John Michael Higgins, who, like you'll know from Christopher Guest movies. Yeah. <laughs> John Michael Higgins showing up in this film was the in- most insane thing that I've ever seen in my life. The I was so excited. The second he came on screen, <laughs> I was pumped. And when he was playing a bad guy, I was like, maybe Blade Trinity's pretty good. And I, I was wrong. I was absolutely yeah, wrong. Yeah, I had the same whiplash. I was like, I'm going to I'm gonna like it this time. And the fact, this cast is so weirdly stacked. The fact that you just said two of your favorite very dry comedians, and it was John Michael Higgins and Parker Posey, and not Patton Oswalt and Natasha Lyonne, who are both also in this movie. All right. <laughs> I mean, Jessica Biel, Ryan Reynolds, Chris Christopherson. I mean, when I saw Parker Posey on the screen, I was just like, what's Parker Posey doing here? I know. <laughs> Did anyone tell her this was not great? <laughs> oh God. The cast is the cast is incredible, and it's people that I've only become bigger fans of as time has gone by. And I love that they it's like they all went to like a it's like they all went to like kind of a week summer camp together. They're like, hey, <laughs> like, Natasha Leone and and Triple H are calling each other up and saying, like, hey, do you remember like we did like it was for like six months. We were like in Blade Blade Trinity, I think it was called. <laughs> it's wild because like these are all like big names now. But before it was just like, so we got the girl from But I'm a Cheerleader, the the funny friend from King of Queens and Van Wilder here. Can we can we make something out of that? <laughs> and like the change, the change that can take place over 16 years is wild. There's a bit where Wesley Snipes is understandably skeptical of all of these amateur vampire hunters coming to his rescue and he says what do you think this is a sitcom and the editor cuts to Patton Oswalt and that is very good yeah. <laughs> that, is a, that is a very good choice to cut to Patton Oswalt in 2004 when they say what do you think this is a sitcom there are moments of brilliance in this movie and I was I was really really rooting for it this time around but like yeah everything that made it unable for me to invest myself in it the first time around remained <laughs> remained yeah. on this grown-up viewing it's wild because they have a uh, Dominic per- Cell coming in who great in prison break he's huge in the the dc comic tv universe yeah, he's real funny in those you're not allowed to be funny oh, he's, in this hilarious. Movie. he's he's so like he's such like a fun presence so to have him play a dracula that everyone's embarrassed to call dracula so they're like it's drake and i'm like that's not the <laughs> name of it that's what you're gonna call your villain uh, who is also fucking dracula yeah <laughs> That was one of the things, too, because here's the, the basic plot of, of the movie, guys. They decided to change away from this. Harvesting humans was too dark, so they still have a scene with harvesting humans later. But it's like only a few humans, so maybe it's not too bad. But they've woken up Dracula because Dracula 
is apparently one of the names he's had. He's ancient now. And now he goes by Drake. <laughs> Here's the part that bothered me too. They said he was originally known as Dagon, which was a deity to both the Mesopotamians and the Canaanites, but he was assumed to be worshipped as a fertility god. In fact, later on, he's he's painted as a mermaid basically, or a merman. That's fantastic. I would love to see, yeah. <laughs> I would love to see Wesley Snipes as Blade fighting a merman. <laughs> well, there were actual vampiric figures from the time period, but it, like they just Googled the name and it was like, oh, Dagon, he was around then. So they put him in as a Dagon. They said, no, and then he was became Dracula. And now I guess he got tired of humanity and went to sleep for a while. And they kind of just like, everything seemed to be built out of Dracula got annoyed, guys. So we got to do something about it. And that felt like the overall plot. There's no real motivation. So if you watch the trailer to Blade, Trinity, you've kind of seen the movie. Yeah. <laughs> and you've kind of seen some of the problems with the movie. And I'm not surprised that you said that David Goyer had pitches that the studio didn't like because there's sort of two really big things happening in terms of like the plot of Blade 3. One of them is that he gets outed to civilians and like the media. So there's a potential movie there that Blade has kind of gone public and in the trailer Whistler says, you're public enemy number one, Blade. (laughs) And then there's this other thing that the vampires are bringing back Dracula and Dracula is somehow instrumental to ushering in that human harvesting that only gets hinted at in this version. And then on top of everything else, it's sort of like a backdoor pilot for the Night Stalkers and Wesley Snipes ends up being third billing tops in his own movie and I think that understandably led to some of the backstage drama that now gets written about. Yeah, it's clearly they're trying to set up a a series of films for Ryan Reynolds and Jessica Biel to like play their characters and they have way more lines and you know what, I always love when Ryan Reynolds plays Deadpool. I'll just say it right now. His Deadpool here is pretty solid. He's doing a very solid Deadpool as he plays, <laughs> what, what's the name? Hannibal King. Hannibal King. Hannibal King is the proto-Deadpool that he has been, uh, that he takes out when he's just like, yeah, I'll do, he did that. He did uh, the 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 fake Deadpool in, in Origins. And then they finally let him play the character after he played it in previous films under different names. It's crazy. Because, like, like we were talking about the Wesley Snipes Blade casting and how, you know, it fits him like a glove. And Ryan Reynolds was born to be Deadpool. But when you're watching this, you think about 2004 and kind of half knowing who Ryan Reynolds is. And just like, this man has more overwritten, like, it's, his dialogue is like R-rated Gilmore Girls. It's just, <laughs> it's just this staccato of cleverness. And he has this incredible unearned confidence with no sadness or pathos in it. And then when you get to Deadpool, it, it's the exact same guy and the exact same vibe. It's just that like, yeah, he's, he's earned this. We like him now. This is a character that we are sympathetic with and that we know talks like this. You know, it'd be like Sean Connery doing James Bond in a different movie, like on a, you know, a submarine or his Robin Hood or something like he's Ryan Reynolds doing Deadpool 10 years early in a different movie where we don't really yet love him or Deadpool just made, you know, me as a teenager wishing that Wesley Snipes could be in his own movie a little bit more. He has a hundred lines total, uh, Wesley Snipes does in the whole film. Wow. He says, like, I think a hundred sentences, including, like, one word sentences. <laughs> Which probably wouldn't be a problem if there wasn't so much talking from everybody else. Yes. Right, because there was a lot of dialogue around there. If it was, like, Clint Eastwood in a Western or something, and he just had a lot of presence, that would be very, that would be very understandable. I don't think Blade talks that much in the other movies. 
Now, this is very, very talky, very talky and very explainy. Is there another self-referential point that I think played well to what we'd eventually be able to see Ryan Reynolds do so well with Deadpool was when Blade asks, you know, kind of the what are we dealing with thing here, Ryan Reynolds tossed down the comic book Dracula, and it is the comic book where Hannibal King and Blade first meet in the 1975 issue. And it was this nice little, like, nod to the original story. Except I saw it, I thought, is this, is this good? Or are you taking us out of this here? <laughs> like, I, I like when, I like when Deadpool does this. I don't know if this fits. Yeah, the, they do it with Wolverine in Logan as well. They make it kind of part of the story that the X-Men were sort of this known phenomenon. And almost as though the previous X-Men movies we saw and the comics were sort of a fictionalized version of whatever had really happened to that version of Logan. I mean, I think that stuff's great. I think that's great. I really like that angle. But the next thing that happens is, is Wesley Snipes says, this is stupid. You're stupid. I hate this. He says Dracula isn't real. And it was so it wasn't supposed to be a comic book from their story. It was just this is the picture he used of Dracula. And it happened to be their story. And it was like, I feel like it was supposed to be a nod to the hardcore fans. But it kind of felt like, I don't know, just save it for Deadpool. Deadpool's coming, guys, if you can hang on. <laughs> Two things that kind of sum up how this movie is overall is they released a trailer for this movie that they had to pull the next day because they credited Jessica Alba for being in it. <laughs> Did yes. they really? Oh, that's very irresponsible. That should not have happened. <laughs> it got all the way to being on the air and they had to immediately pull it because they were just like, that's not the actress we have in this film. That's remarkable. And two, Wesley Snipes did not enjoy that he was being used as a backdoor pilot for the, for the Night Stalker spinoff. He did not like that one bit. And so there was a scene where Blade's supposed to open his eyes and he refused to do it allegedly. I say allegedly very loosely because they clearly CGI eyes opening onto him. If you watch it, it's very obvious now that they that he obviously did not open his eyes, but they just CGI two eyes just clearly like popping open a little too fast and like not looking quite right. But Wesley Snipes didn't want to open his eyes that day and he just wanted to give Goyer a hard time. <laughs> that is super weird. 100% believable. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, this is a free directing trick. Uh, what you do is you yell cut, but you keep rolling. <laughs> <laughs> and then those actors, you know, open their eyes because they think they're done. But then you got it. That's the take. And then, and then you yell, then you yell cut for real. And they're like, ah, I opened my eyes. <laughs> they probably spent $50,000 on that CGI. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's, it's nuts. I mean, I never, I really, really love the, the first two. And that's why, that's why I wanted to talk to you guys about them. But the first two have what, you know, to me as a, as a, as a young person, who was kind of in the tank for this kind of stuff feels like an effortless cool. And the third one hates you for watching it. (laughs) (laughs) The third one, like everything about the third one is like, it's not really, it's not really scenes as much as like beating together characters and gadgets. It's very TV pilot and everything is very heavily branded and all of the brands are just kind of dumped on you. Like when they introduce the group, it's like, we call ourselves the Night Stalkers and then Blade craps on the Night Stalkers for having a stupid name and Ryan Reynolds also craps on the Night Stalkers for having a stupid name and I'm just sitting there in the audience like I didn't decide they would be called 
the right. Night Star. You told me that this was cool, and now you're saying it's it's stupid. And it's like, and then they, and five seconds later, they're like, "This is this is our gizmo, and these bullets are called sun dogs." And so I did not bring a notebook. Yeah, I cannot keep up with the the. Okay, Patton Oswalt is hedges. He built the sun dogs. He's a member of the Night Stalkers. He's not. He's Dracula, but but he's called Drake because Dracula's stupid. And <laughs> It's a movie that's so embarrassed that it exists, which is the main issue with it. They, like, they're just, like, trying to wink to the audience to be like, this is dumb, right? And it's like, I don't want it to be dumb. I felt cool <laughs> watching those other ones. Yeah, I thought we were in on this together. Yeah, and, like, this whole movie, it, like, is shot in daylight for some reason. Like, I feel like there are so many scenes in this that are just broad daylight and, like, where the other movies have incredible like very fluid action like long shots where you could see the choreography this one is hiding it from you as best it can with clearly sped up movements and quick cuts so you don't know that they're just like there's one shot where it's just a guy's foot going like he's doing kicks but he's just doing it to the camera and then it just kind of cuts to jessica beale like putting her arms up like she's blocking them. And I'm like, you can show me kicks. This is an R-rated film. Yeah. <laughs> I think kicks are allowed. Wesley Snipes got this job by being a martial artist. And I think I he's also, you know, a, like a few years had gone by uh, since the first Blade movie. I know that he's had like legal difficulties <laughs> and personal <laughs> difficulties. Yeah. But Blade does a lot of like moseying in this movie. <laughs> like whenever Blade has to get someplace, it's a lot. There will be like an unnecessary flip he and jessica beale both do a lot of unnecessary flipping in this movie but then once he's on his feet he'll break into like a light jog yeah (laughs) one of my favorite things is he's also just in scenes that he does not need to be in in any way like they're just like this is a blade movie we need blade in this shot so it'll be like there's a scene where a woman finds her friend dead and is yelling out to god but blade is just clearly like positioned in the corner where like he's the focus of the shot. It's a very weird shot where like you're not looking at this girl's face. You're looking at Blade watching her being obstructed by holding a body. Like it's just a weird thing where it's just like clearly not planned out. It was not planned well. And yet he's still not in the movie nearly enough. It's, it's <laughs> crazy. Not only that, but they like do this weird reveal at the end where like They're just trying to say, oh, actually, the real plot was Dracula is trying to make new kinds of vampires. And so him and Blade have this sword fight as all Blade films have to end on. Dracula dies and he's just like, you are the vampire I was hoping to make. And it's like, you had nothing to do with this, Dracula. You can't take credit for Blade. You've been asleep for so long. And then, like, he uses his shape-shifting abilities to pretend to be Blade for the coroners so that Blade can get away for being public enemy number one. And it's like, why is he now doing solids for Blade? That makes no sense. Also, this was a big one for me, was that, and then when he's on the table, he shapeshifts back. It was like, well, what do we do all this for then? <laughs> you're, you're back, they, they know you're not Blade now. This helped nobody. This was a lot of time for no reason. Right, you gave him like an afternoon's head start. 
So I think I think it's it's really easy for a bunch of fucking nerds and the losers who listen to their podcast to sit around <laughs> and fix a movie. But I do think in the last Blade and Dracula fight, even if they find it really, really late and, and it doesn't really apply retroactively, there's a really good idea there that I think should have been this entire movie, which is that Blade and Dracula are both men out of time and they have this kind of chivalrous code and that's why they fight with swords and they fight with honor and why Dracula like respects him and you know how Blade thinks that that is uh, so repugnant you know that the greatest monster in my world uh, could like see me as like having something in common with him and it would also put distance between Blade and these like new young people who are like these kind of like MTV trash people who fight with (laughs) (laughs) who fight with like CGI laser guns and stuff like I think that there's a really there's a really good idea in there that they just find a little too too little too late. I mean, Goyer is a fantastic screenwriter. This is this is not an indictment of Goyer's talent. It's clearly he had an idea for this movie and they said, "No, make it do a different one and also the release date is not changing." is how that really does come across. And by the way, uh, Wesley Snipes is a little difficult. If you can make Ryan Reynolds and Jessica Biel the leads for the next one, that would be great. Anyways, have fun. <laughs> I, I I think what was, was interesting here was other than, you know, obviously the stories we read about Wesley Snipes was I didn't, I didn't blame anyone in the movie for it. I didn't think, oh, this was bad acting or this was poorly planned. It all, it all felt like it was something that, that was forced and not what any of them were trying to make. And I think to to Daniel's point of how much easy this is to talk about afterwards, I am 100% confident if I made a Blade 3 movie, it would be so much worse. <laughs> I would make such a bad Blade movie. It was fun fact. Fun fact, there is a picture of me as like a chubby sixth grader dressed as Blade one Halloween that I'll never <laughs> I'll never let see the light of day. Straight to Twitter with that one. <laughs> I, I, agree, I agree with you. I think that I think that um, it was uh, one one really one really common refrain around my house. If there's a movie or a TV show that we don't like, sometimes we'll just blurt out like it's too many things. This is too many things, <laughs> yes. you know, like I really like Raised by Wolves, but if you've got a criticism of it, this is too many things. <laughs> and um, yeah, I think that I think that Blade Trinity is it's so clearly trying to just it's this painful birth of what they hope will be a new franchise. And I think if they just picked one, I mean, Blade versus Dracula is a great idea. Just embrace the embrace the fact that it's Dracula. Blade accidentally killing a person and being at war with humans uh, and, you know, cops in the media is a really good idea but um they don't they don't end up serving any of them i mean it's an incredible cast wesley snipes is blade it's undeniable he is blade i mean i'm, I'm excited to see ollie's take but wesley snipes very much so I, I think that's gonna be very good and i think though that does give us a head start in our next section though which is obviously the in their defense i feel like we've mostly pointed out the things that but do either of you have an in their defense aside from the things we've just discussed about blade trinity why this should have happened i mean blade trinity in a nutshell is it's all right there in the title it's like this is the movie we're embarrassed to call blade three yeah (laughs) everything about it is so is so aggressively over the top like somebody else's idea of cool on this like diminishing returns franchise where i'm the biggest fan in the world and i'm aging out of it right under their noses as the marketplace gets more competitive and the movies get more like visually dynamic i think the the things the things that make it worth watching are understanding like the background drama in context the incredible cast 
And I will say it's in the same scene. The scene where they get to the human harvesting, that is all of Blade 3 should have looked like that. Like that is a very logical extension of it's it's visually compelling. It's horrific, but in a very modern and sort of like fear of technology kind of way. And the first two movies are very much about the vampire's relationship with technology and like technology as a metaphor for, you know, draining the lives out of people. Yeah. <laughs> I think that that's a really, that's a really compelling idea. And it has the best line in the movie where the chief of police who is working with the vampires uh, says he can't let Blade in because they'll kill him and Wesley Snipes I'm gonna I'm gonna guess improvises motherfucker I'll kill you (laughs) that was a good line and that was one of those moments where I was just like man there is a very fun movie somewhere in here and like that's my that's that'll be my defense is yes like that harvesting scene which fun fact was actually taken from a deleted scene from the first Blade. That was right. actually like snuck in there. No kidding. That explains why. That explains why for five minutes it feels like everything is really uh, in continuity with all the stuff that I loved already. It got cut from the original film, so Goyer was just like, "I love it. I'm gonna put it in." But it's more horrifying in Trinity. Like in the first like deleted scene, it's just some people like kind of mummy wrapped in like a in like with an IV in them. This is like people being vacuum sealed. And just, like, brain damage, which, like, is body horror to me, which is the thing that fucks me up the most. So, like, that scene right there, I'm like, that's... And with also a bribing humans, uh, like, the police to bring in vagrants and, and, like, this whole idea of, like, a mass genocide that society is kind of okay with. Like, that's a super interesting idea of just, like, yeah, these are transients. These are runaways. These are the cops bringing in the people that no one will notice and it's fine because it keeps the vampires from attacking the important people. I'm like, that is a horrifying, great idea for a Blade movie. And you put in two minutes of that. Yeah. <laughs> now we got to go fight Drake. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, Drake. You know, Drake. Yeah. The, you know, he was also the mermaid guy. Yeah. Drake. Drake, who I, my wife was watching with me and, uh, and I said, that's Dracula. And she said, huh. And I said, well, no, no, don't stop it. Huh? What do you, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, you know, he's very tan, isn't he? There's a part where Dominic Purcell is the actor's name. Yes. Dominic Purcell is, there's just, there's a lot of competing ideas in this movie, not just plot ideas, but also sort of like what, you know, in striving to stay very cool and and stay very relevant and cherry pick the parts that we think are cool from the mythology or false for the purposes of the narrative. There's a part where Dominic Purcell's Dracula goes into like a vampire store, like a thing that doesn't exist. Yes. Kind of a hot topic, <laughs> but what he's at is at a but just vampires at a vampire memorabilia store, and there's like kind of gothy people behind the counter, and he, he hates them. The idea is that like they're like this, you know wimpy, watered-down version of what he is. But he's not dressed like Dracula. He's dressed as, like, a kind of a, like a, I don't know, like an Australian guitar teacher? Like, he's wearing, <laughs> wearing like, a leather jacket and, like, an open peasant shirt and, like, chains and stuff. And yet... So many chains. Yeah, he just, you know, he just looks like a like an L.A. guy with an older wife. 
and he, <laughs> and he comes in and, and kills them because like they're not real vampires it's like well what are you you're this weird in-between thing you're not dracula but you're not like a regular person also i want where it went wrong in the title to be when dracula dressed like an australian guitar teacher <laughs> i i will say it is kind of a another summation of the ethos of this movie is like they just build up dracula's back Dracula's here and he's going to fuck things up. He's going to make a whole new race of vampires. And Dracula spins most of the movie being like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't like Parker Posey. I don't like you guys. I don't like your plan. Yeah. I sort of, I sort <laughs> of know about Blade. I found out about Blade like two days ago. And now like, I kind of see him as like an equal. <laughs> like, it's really like them just trying to egg him on into doing stuff, which is like uh, behind the scenes. That's exactly what they were trying to do with Wesley Snipes the entire movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's. I know that we're supposed to be defending it right now, but I, I think what it what it ultimately comes down to is that it's a really listy movie with a lot of gadgets and people and ideas in it, but no real one story and characters who don't appear to want anything definable. <laughs> no, I, I think that's a really good explanation of it. Yeah, and I think at that we have our summation of Blade Trinity and. I gotta say, was it worth watching Blade Trinity? Who's to say? <laughs> I'm glad. No, I'm glad I watched it again. One of the one of the things that made me nervous about coming on this show is is that I'm in the business and I know how hard it is to to get things made. But um, I'm on the record talking smack about Blade Three, and it was a good excuse to kind of revisit it and see, you know, it, what I really like about it, and in you know, if I was being unfair. And the answer is uh, not entirely. Yeah, <laughs> and I I think the big takeaway for me is that. Would I watch Blade Trinity to be able to watch Blade 1 and 2? 100%. It fell off the mark a bit, but Blade 1 and 2 were so good that it can survive this enough that, that Ali is bringing it back in obviously a new form. And Blade did some absolutely groundbreaking stuff, especially introducing a strong black lead into this, this introduction of what the superhero world could be. And it was obviously the right choice and obviously a strong choice at the time that I'm, I'm sure was hard to get done. And they, they got it done very well in this last movie on a fallen off. But I mean, as we discussed in the opening of this, there is a lot in vampire history. There is a ton there. There is a ton to pull from. And ultimately, if you're going to try to make a story out of this, it may or may not hit. It's a hard thing to get right. And thankfully, Blade 1 and 2 did, even if Blade Trinity didn't. All right. That was a lot of fun, guys. Daniel, thank you so much for, for coming on. I really, I, I loved being able to revisit the first two Blade films. And, you know, I appreciate the effort that was put into Blade Trinity is how I'll put that. That's yeah. about right. Yeah. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I uh, can and will talk about the Blade franchise with anyone at any time. That's a standing offer for all of our listeners. Please start writing to Daniel about Blade immediately. You sit next to me on an airplane. I will be receptive. <laughs> so, Daniel, again, thank you for being here. It was, it was an absolute pleasure to have you. Again, I've been a fan for quite a long time. To all our listeners, if you enjoy this, please subscribe. Give us five stars. It helps us out so much. We will be back again next week. We hope you'll join us. And uh, when? I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.